Welcome back to another episode of the Evidence-Based Education podcast. This time round, you'll hear from Alex Quigley, who's director of the research school at Huntington School in York. Alex blogs at The Confident Teacher and tweets at Hunting English, and he has much expertise in the field of evidence-based education on a practical level, day to day. His talk is entitled Evidence-Based School Improvement, Challenges, Successes and Next Steps. We hope you find it useful, and if you do, don't forget to leave us a review and a rating in iTunes or in your usual podcast place. I was really let down actually, I was kind of, (laughs) I'd built him up. challenges actually I'll go on to the challenges later on um, so I, I'll give you a little bit of background I'll just fill in a little bit it sounds a bit indulgent to give another kind of background but I think to contextualize this evidence-based school improvement to kind of understand that I, I need to tell you about where kind of that came from for me individually so if I start um, about five or six years ago I've been a teacher for 15 years I'm still a teacher at the same school I started 15 years ago, where I was a a really bad NQT. Um, I'm still there, but I've changed my role considerably. But about seven or eight years ago, I was head of English, and it was at a time when um, curriculum and assessment was changing. And constantly, things would change mid-year that I planned meticulously for, for the whole year. And then, you know, the Minister of Education at the time, uh, Mr. Gove, would make a change. And it would actually have a big impact on me because I'd spent a huge amount of time planning meticulously with teachers and adapting things. And I got really frustrated. And actually, there was no real support for me to make better choices, to make better decisions. There was no real sense of, right, who do I go to to change assessment in English department? Who do I go to to redesign curriculum given this change has just happened? And we have in England this mishmash of, we have unions, but they've got a very specific role, which isn't really about teaching and learning predominantly. Um, We've got some schools who are part of school chains and kind of groups and multi-academy trusts, and they have aspects of learning. And then you have consultants and supports. And then you have the DFE, who back when I started teaching used to play a more significant role than you had the National College, which have a more significant role. But six or seven years ago, as a middle leader making really important decisions, 
that affected hundreds of students and 15 teachers, I had very little support. So I started to look outwards. And the more outwardly looking I got, the more I started to dig into evidence and look for better answers. And it was pretty much an independent pursuit. My head teacher didn't know a great deal about it. Teachers in my school weren't necessarily doing it. It wasn't something we were sitting in the staff room talking about over lunch. It really wasn't a hot topic. It was something that I was doing kind of furtively at home. And then I also started to engage in social media and Twitter and, and seeing that other people were in similar scenarios and there were also experts on social media who were offering me useful answers and useful resources and useful tools. And it wasn't just frivolous time wasting, although some of it definitely is. Actually, it was really useful. And I found answers and I found ways that I could develop my practice. And I started to, to meet people like Jonathan Sharples. Um, that was a bit of a formative meeting where he came into school because my head was quite engaged and had seen um, a talk from Jonathan at York University about um, evidence-based school improvement. Jonathan Sharples came in. I was a kind of um, a head of English who knew very little about evidence-based practice or school improvement. I was just trying to do my job well. And he came in and just supported us to do a simple trial of feedback and oral feedback that we were using as part of our new policy. And just those small seeds of just doing a better job amidst all of the kind of hurly-burly was really a definitive point in my career. And it didn't change everything, and it didn't make everything easy. There was no silver bullet that was in you know, a quick fix. But what it was, definitively, was a crucial support for my role in school. And I became a better middle leader, and actually I know my teachers were better supported, and... On that journey, also my head teacher, John Thompson, also went through that similar pathway of finding that expertise and it making for an easier job for him and, and a better job for, within our school. And we were getting better as a school at the same time, and that's crucial as well. Like kind of, you don't just kind of you know, disappear out of school and find these lovely things. It was having an impact in the classrooms in our school. We were attracting teachers who wanted to work at our school because of the things we were doing and we were outward looking around research evidence and doing a really good job. So this notion of evidence-based school improvement, kind of find out more about that um, as I talk, but I just wanted to give you that very personal perspective. I don't think evidence-based practice is some luxury that should be the preserve of a few teachers in a few schools. I actually think evidence-based practice should underpin everything that we do that whenever we're making decisions that are really important for the children that we teach, including my children in the school that they're taught at, that I want really good decisions being made. And to make those decisions, given the time and the pressure and the limited resources we have, we need the best tools. And evidence isn't the only tool, but it supports us. One of the things, part of my journey, I can use the J words, I've used it a couple of times already, um, is better understanding assessment and being able to use it to evaluate my practice and evaluate what teachers in my school were doing. And what's, what's ended up becoming a kind of a big part of the training that I offer or we offer as a school or we offer to people within our school is not let's do lots of new things. It's let's evaluate what we do and let's stop doing things that don't work. 
I think we're a very passionate profession who want to do a fantastic job for children and most of us are doing this job with a moral purpose for helping children do fantastically well at school. But because of that investment emotionally, morally, we try really hard and we try lots of different things. And because we're time poor, we often try a lot and we don't evaluate it. So teachers end up burdened with a kind of a, a sack full of all these new initiatives and ideas. And assessment and evidence-based practice can actually make us do fewer things, but do them better. And, and we have teachers who are intellectually challenged by that, who are supported by that, and who are making better decisions. So, so that's my story, and that's what, how I see evidence-based practice. And it's something rooted in teachers making decisions in the classroom. Okay, so I'll talk through some challenges about why that's a little bit idealistic and we kind of need to unpick why, some, you know, why it's not commonly held viewpoint. Some of the successes, some of the good things that are happening and some of the next steps, um, which will also be picked up. Is Jonathan speaking tomorrow night? So he's, he's from the EEF, who I'll mention. He's going to talk very much about the next steps um, for the profession and for education and using evidence-based practice and using the tools that you, you're seeing this week. Um, so I'll mainly focus on the challenges and successes. Um, I'm a bit conscious um, that you've had lunch, uh, you've had lunch, you've had evening dinner um, and you've had a couple of drinks, so I'll try not to drone on. I do want you to ask me questions to stop me because sometimes, I, the other day I was talking about using some acronym and someone just put their hands up and said, I have no clue what you're on about. Um, so please stop me and talk and ask questions. Um, and I like that. When it gets about nine o'clock, um, and you, we're flagging a little bit, you know, just, just heckle me, just, just heckle me off. Um, I, I want to start with the challenges. Um, why I'm involved in using research evidence is because I face challenges. And as a profession, we face challenges, whether that's limited budget, limited time, limited expertise. In England, it's pretty much all of those. And you, know, you can get kind of, in doing some of the work, traveling around the country and working with groups of teachers. This week, I was working with new teachers, Monday, Tuesday in Leeds, um, Teach First, who are just about to enter the profession. And I was talking about feedback and marking. And I was trying to arm them with a sense that they might be in a school where their marking policy isn't very good. And they might need to covertly, some of the time, do a better job when they close the classroom door. And actually, some of the challenges is that we're not making necessarily great decisions in schools from school leaders, and our policymakers aren't making lots of great decisions either. So it's not some kind of halcyon kind of you know, country where everything's fantastic, but there's really interesting positive things going on. Um, some of the issues, and if you're just, can I just have a show of hands who teaches in England? Okay, so we've got a kind of balance and then we've got a global perspective as well. In England, you've got the turmoil circulating around a new curriculum. You've got a new assessment, so you've got a one to nine in secondary schools and in primary schools, you've got a new standardized score. You've got lots of different assessments all the way from early years, from phonics check, right up to GCSE and A-levels. There is no phase of education in England which is stable, which has had five or six years of teachers 
trialing it, getting better at doing it, sharing good practice, everything is changing. And that turmoil makes it very hard to learn to do a really good job because you're constantly trying to catch up with what's coming next or what, what you're in the midst of. So that's a challenging process. And for me, in that context, you've almost got to slow down and you've got to have the bravery and confidence to say, we can't do everything. And in one year, we can only change some aspects of what we do. And we have to prioritize and we have to say yes to certain things and no to others. And the things that we say yes to, that's where we've got you know, the best evidence around. And we use our wisdom and judgment in our schools too. So that's difficult to do all of that in that changing context. At the very same time, that budgets are being sliced. And it can be in overt ways, in obvious ways, and then it can just be in, you know, kind of inflation for books and pens. School budgets are allegedly protected, you know, at a certain, certain level, but actually, as everything else gets more expensive, they're not, they're shrinking. And what we have in England as well is a demographic boom. And it's really impacted in primary schools predominantly at the moment, but it will hit in secondary schools very soon, yes. A, a demographic, so there's, there's many more children. So there's, there's millions more um, children in the school system. Um, and that's coming through. I, my daughter, who's um, eight, she's nine in September, um, when she was born, they just after she was born, they closed the maternity ward because it was already full. Um, and that year has got a huge boom. So I'm partly to blame for this. Um, it's popular. It was a, it was a sunny, sunny year. Um, we were all very happy. Um, but as that growth happens, our number of teachers are shrinking. Our budgets are shrinking. So you can see the pressures that are on there. Um, so it's not an ideal time. It's not an ideal time. And I do think, you know, in that context, we are, and under the accountability pressure, we'll, we'll go for quick fixes. And we'll go for, you know, quick fixes that do something for us in the next three or four months or this school year. And that sustainable deep school improvement, we have to push that back. And we never quite get to it. So, so they're real challenges. And what we have is this was a quote um, from about a year or so ago. People dare not look at you. Okay. It, was it that bottle of wine or was it? <laughs> He's listening. Now, I know that I, I'll happily take this out of context. Um, and I know he kind of argues since that he didn't quite mean it in this fashion. But actually, there is you know, a lack of expertise, a lack of support for schools. And that's been happening for over a decade in England. We've been stripping away the support factors. And, you know, they were labeled quangos and everything else, and some of them weren't so great potentially. But actually, it's been the stripping away of expertise from the profession. 18,000 teachers left England last year to teach abroad. Okay. And there are you know, obvious reasons why so many teachers would leave a lot of them positive, a lot of them driven by wanting to leave English schools. And when you have that context, and when you deride experts, then that's what you get. That's what you get. And frankly, we've, we've still got a lot of those people who are leading schools. 
and their leading schools with a very bombastic perspective about, right, well, students come first and we're going to, you know, we're going to work really hard and teachers are going to be in their holidays coming into schools and, you know, putting every ounce of their blood, sweat and tears. And actually what's happening is a huge number of teachers are leaving the profession. And a lot of them are leaving because of pressures like that caused by people like this. Now, what you are also seeing is where sanity prevails, and there are a huge number of good schools, and the fact that you're here this evening is probably because you are in a school that is sane and, and makes lots of better decisions than some of the ones I've talked about. There are lots of good schools, and people are staying in those good schools, moving to those good schools, and you're getting this kind of tiered system within England where certain areas, people just will not go and work there. And the government have created this problem, and then they will throw money at specific areas, but they've actually taken away the systematic support factors that are required for really great teaching, because that happens over time. And it's not, you know, you don't parachute in, you know, these, these super heads. It doesn't work like that. Culture of school improvement is a long-term process. Um, and at the same time, you have... The Department of Education in England doing some very good things, um, some of which I'll talk about, and then some not so good things. And that is the nature of politics. But the evidence that is used for politicians or the evidence that is supported most by politicians reflects their ideology. And the most recent example was with grammar schools. So just before the recent election, you saw the renaissance potentially of grammar schools. We're going to have another you know, a grammar school in every town. Now, the reality that we know, the best evidence around grammar schools is that, and we still have them now in Kent and on the Wirral and in different areas of the country. Yeah. So that grammar schools don't have a positive impact on the school system. And, and there are a few things in education that have that much solid evidence Then we shouldn't have grammar schools. We should have a different model. And yet they were coming back because of one or two people in the Department of Education and in number 10 Downing Street who wanted them. And for no other reason that they wanted them, they'd been to that type of school, so everyone else was going to really have them too. And still, our policy is driven by ideology, and that happens the world over. But there is still, at the same time, a push towards use, using evidence. And what is interesting, I think the reason why we've not got this new wave of grammar schools is because the election didn't go the way the Conservative Party expected it to go. And that's the main reason why they didn't have grammar schools. But the Conservative Party are in power. They have buried the notion of grammar schools because everyone was consistently saying, well, those schools that currently exist are really good, but it's not a model that we can use across the system because the evidence was there. One anecdote I really like, I think I was told by Jonathan Sharples, who'll speak to you tomorrow, about another um, schools minister um, a few years ago. And while the education minister was on holiday, the schools minister was in the big seat um, in London and decided to send out um, a message around um, grouping in schools and about setting being a preferred model for grouping children in schools. Um, it was 
it was during a school it was during a school week and it kind of came i can't remember when it was but it came out um, on a normal school day and immediately within that day that message that came came out a little bit murkily you know kind of not exactly knowing the source a huge number of people on social media and beyond and unions and people like the EF quickly challenged the notion of changing like that because the evidence was so clearly not supporting it that actually the minister had to quickly row back and denied it ever happened. And we know it did happen, but the denial was strong. And, and then everything happens and then the week after, you know, that's chip paper and everyone's forgotten it. But it was really interesting that when, when you have a profession that knows the evidence and that has the tools to be autonomous, to challenge stupidity, and just actually to have the agency and decisions to lead schools as they see fit, then we can challenge poor policy. And I think that's where I see evidence-based school improvement, that the more I know as a school leader, the better I can protect teachers in my school, the better decisions I can make, the better I can use the money I'm given, et cetera, et cetera. And I really like this um, by Sir John Holman around notion of, we hear evidence-based a lot. It's a phrase now that when I get, you know, my emails from company X um, selling me product Y, that it's evidence-based. And sometimes I actually follow that up and have a look. And it's not, it, the evidence is spurious and very limited. And the evidence is limited to a couple of teachers in a school saying it was great. And I'm not saying that those people are necessarily wrong, but that's not good evidence to then sell a product to hundreds of schools in very different contexts. And what we need to do is no more. And under all those pressures of time, limited budget, limited expertise, if we use our time wisely, that every teacher in the school has a good handle of the best available evidence, that they're making good choices in the classroom, from grouping students, from asking questions, from setting assessments, all the way up from head teachers spending their budget and choosing one intervention over another and one assessment over another, then we'll be better off. And we won't have to be so swayed by the latest policy or latest curriculum shift. Um, and in that changing pressure time, it's almost the perfect conditions to ignore evidence. It's almost the perfect conditions to just go for your quick fix. You know, when you go to the supermarket and there's, you know, there's some quite locally, what do they put just before the checkout? Sweets. Yeah, I've got two small children. That's it. It's an absolute nightmare. Um, but they put sweets and alcohol in specific spots because people are tired at the end of the shop and they're looking for quick fixes. And the sweets are just there. They're just cheap enough. They're at eye line to my little girl and boy. And then, you know, people fall for that. When we are tired and when our you know, energies are limited, we'll make quick fix decisions. And I'm not saying that I'm separate from that either. Of course I do that as well. The, the later it gets to the end of the school term, the more junk food I eat. The more alcohol I drink correlates with the school year. Okay. And I like to think, you know, I'm a, I'm a rational being, I'm making choices all the time, and of course I am, but 
when we're tired and strained and under pressure and all those other things, then you know, something's got to give. Um, and it's usually me buying more beer. Um, and that, under all these conditions, we go for that short-term, and we are pressured to go for the short-term improvement, and the long-term, we never quite get around to it. We never quite have the time. So whenever we're doing you know, a focus on school improvement, it's for the year ahead, when really we should be considering things on three- and five-year cycles because that's the reality of real improvement. When you see these business books from good to great and you know, people are telling people to jump off the bus and all this, you know, they select those samples after the fact and they, and they extrapolate from these companies that that's the way to do it. And actually, when you go back 10 years later, those companies that were heralded as the greatest from you know, that very same sample, you go back and actually they've all regressed to the mean, they're all average again, they were never that great, they just had a spike at the right time and they were the right people in the right place. School improvement is really, really hard. System improvement is really difficult. The one thing you know, I would concede to the Department of Education, there are a lot of great people who work there, but actually it's really difficult to change positively a school system. I recognise that but we don't need to create the conditions that makes it worse. That's what I'd say. Um, just a little um, question for you around how you make decisions in your school. So I just want you to talk, um, talk to the person next to you around what factors do you think most influence your choices, your decisions? Okay. So within school, not in the supermarket aisles um, with small children. Okay. What factor do you think realistically influences you most from that? Okay. Anyone want to offer up the particular selections? Any kind of go? On? The um, learning what works in our schools certainly. I know that that's what our leaders do. Yeah. Um, the sort of the sort of I have my personal went to lots of other schools. Yeah. So similar schools. We know. That that's a huge factor in terms of what, why, why people take things on. So in York last year, there was a big issue with writing for children in year six. Okay, so the 11-year-olds in the kind of national tests. Everyone panicked a little bit with those writing assessments. And then at the same time, um, a certain company who do some very good work around writing came to York and what did virtually all of the primary schools do? They all said, we'll do that new writing program. Near the end of the year, well, it had kind of gone lots of different ways. But we go with this herd instinct, and it's because we trust that it's a similar scenario to us. So that is really common. Any other? Yes? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So external policy pressures basically direct a lot of the traffic. We know that's true of our system massively. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're listening to the people, probably where are the people who have saved money, and where we listen to what the accountability system is telling us, and often what the school down the road is telling us about that. So what happens with evidence, external research evidence, it kind of falls down the pile, and understandably so, because it doesn't meet our pressing needs, and often it doesn't align with the challenges. So the research evidence might say do one thing, but the accountability pressure is saying, well, you can do that all you like, but you must do this. So there are competing pressures there. Um, this is from the NFER, which is interesting in terms of the school system in England. Why are we making choices? Why are we making decisions? And the biggest is past experience. We've done it before, we'll stick with it. And I think that's a very human trait and a very normal, healthy, trait actually as well. But when things change, when assessments change, when curriculum changes, in England it's pretty much getting harder. The assessments are much harder than they were before and very different. Doing the same doesn't necessarily meet the needs of the children. So there are some, some tensions here. And actually what worked with a different set of teachers and different set of students doesn't necessarily work with a new cohort. One of the things I've tried to push more towards every year of my career, the more I've understood, is around every single cohort is different to the last. And I know that's really obvious, isn't it? But we don't actually change our schools. We, well, we make changes in our schools often based on a cohort that's left. If things went badly or went fantastically well, we will make our choice based on that. But the cohort, cohorts that we still have could be very different. And actually, again, this is about long-term judgments and choices. What is a politician looking for? Quick wins, quick votes. What is a head teacher, and I, you know, I'm a senior leader myself, what are we looking for? To not be hammered by Ofsted and to get good results. So there are real pressures that challenge using evidence and, and real improvement that is sustained. Yes? Yeah, 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 that's brilliant. There's a difference between primary and secondary. Yeah. So how many secondary leaders are making decisions and don't know why they're yeah. making decisions? That, that's, I almost don't want to talk about it. That's desperately depressing. Sorry. That lots of people don't know why they're making decisions. Yeah. Let's skip over that. Let's not even, that's too depressing. Um, I love this quote as well, because actually, let's give a little bit of credit that Maybe they don't know because it's, it's, there's a lot of factors. Maybe they're thinking it's, it's quite complex. And I, I really like this in terms of whenever I'm trying to talk about evidence, well, people will say, well, every child is different. You know, you, any classroom you can't control or any teachers te can't teach in exactly the same way. There are real, you know, factors around that. But you've got to have a good understanding of assessment and children are more similar than they are different. And I think we've got to have that perspective. Um, and then this notion, and I, I, I push this forward myself, that 
I've got to be really cognizant of my own lack of knowledge, my own ignorance around, there's a huge amount of school decisions I've, I've not got good evidence on, I don't really know the answer. I need to know what I don't know. I need to go and ask people who do know. I'm outward looking because I know I don't know lots of stuff. I lie managed science, and we can talk a little bit uh, earlier on. So I sit in science lessons, largely ignorant um, in A-level science lessons. I'm looking at kind of language because I'm an English teacher, so I'm thinking of the words, etc. But I'm, I'm, I'm largely ignorant in some of them. And we have a school system where teachers of English are judging teachers of science, often with lesson gradings that are completely spurious. So we, we just have to stop making silly decisions like that. We have to slow down. We have to use more sources of available evidence and ideas. Um, and I'm biased, and you should be thinking right now, well, yes, well, he's saying all this, but you know, who's he to say that? And you're right. Who am I to say that? You should be exploring the basis of what I said and be critical of the sources. And I think we need to be a much more critical profession. And I don't think we are. I think we're too compliant because we're short of time and we're short of expertise and support. So we just get our head down and just you know, do the best we can. In terms of research evidence, I think we're sold so many headlines. So many headlines. And, and we like headlines too because we're busy, we're quick. This headline is one that we probably like, but if you're um, English and you know that source, what do we think about the Daily Star? <laughs> Not the most reliable. I don't get that on a Sunday, um, I'll have you know. Um, the Irish Examiner um, looks a little bit more serious, the font at least, um, and the logo is a little bit more impressive. But both of these represent the same research. They both have the same kind of casual sexism as well, if you kind of just notice the media language. Um, I'm a media studies teacher as well. And then that looks at very serious and it moves on to healthcare. They're all citing the same research evidence. Huffington Post, I actually read things on the Huffington Post, so I'm more likely inclined to believe that. Why I'm using this example, I'm talking about research evidence and how it's valuable and can help our decisions. But actually, a lot of the evidence that is shared with us is actually false. And that study is a real study. Okay? All of those headlines, they all come from a university study. The only issue is it was actually a study that was designed with the express reason to fool people and to show you the limitations of research evidence. So you don't need to be a scientist to kind of grasp 60, well, you're in a week of assessment. You know, that small sample size, so many measures, you're going to find something and something that can give you the headline that you want. And what we have in our school system is this happening to us all the time. Buy this product because it will help your students. Do this school improvement model because it will fix everything. And there's often a book and all these other things that come around it. And it's a billion dollar industry. It's a global industry. And we need to be more critical of it and we need to be more perceptive. But we need to support one another. And I think this takes school leaders giving teachers time to be able to do this better. Because we will still fall for this even though we know that some of these limitations exist around evidence. But I want every teacher at Huntington School, in my school, 
to say to me, if I say we're going to do this next year, to say, why are we doing it? Is there any evidence that it works? Has it happened in schools like ours? Is there any independent evidence that it works? And actually be critical and challenge. Because if they don't critically challenge me, then and they're not critical in their classrooms, then they will not make the best decisions they could have made for the children. I'm not attacking teachers. I'm still in the classroom myself, and I've still got the pressures of being a teacher and trying to do the best job with limited tools and information. But we need to be more critical, and evidence-based school improvement should be not about doing lots of new things and buying lots of new products. It should be about stopping doing things and being more critical and being challenging. So for the rest of the week, you should challenge um, Stuart and anything he says. Anything Stuart says, you know, where does he get that evidence from? Um, any tool he mentions, let's be critical. And actually, one of the reasons why I am critical is I've worked with Stuart and, and he's given me that training and support to be able to do that. Better understanding assessment means you can actually evaluate much more effectively. And that's so crucial. And I didn't realize that for a decade of my career. And I wish I did. Uh, one thing I like, another thing that kind of fools all of us, and this fools, you know, scientists on university campus, we were talking about um, family members who are, um, that when we put an image of the human brain, actually, it turns out that we find cognitive science more believable if it's got a picture of the brain. You know, we have ingrained biases and shortcuts in our thinking. But when we recognize them, actually, we can override them better. So it's about recognizing some of our limitations. And we can spot snake oil. We can spot the dodgy things that are sold to us. And actually, when we evaluate what we do better, then actually we stop doing things and we stop buying things. And we actually narrow our focus to the impact in the classroom and we take one or two things that probably have developed over time and have this slight incremental improvement and we have outstanding great teachers working well in an environment that is supported. Those decisions are cool a bit. Just one example, just a choice, I think. Being a teacher is about choices. This assessment or that assessment. This question to that child or that child. For a school leader, it's a choice, should we go with this type of technology or this type of technology or no type of technology and another approach. We're making choices all the time, countless choices every week. And that's where having the evidence base helps us. So just one example for you, um, Chatterbooks. Has anyone ever heard of Chatterbooks? Okay, Chatterbooks is a reading program um, and it's a program that is about reading for pleasure. Um, and it was given five million from um, the Department of Education to support Chatterbooks clubs around the country, etc. With the express aim of Chatterbooks helping reading attainment, helping children get better at reading. That was the express aim of it. Nikki Morgan was the Secretary of State at the time. She was saying, you know, it's fantastic. And who in the room would possibly say reading for pleasure is a bad thing? That'd be ridiculous. That would be kind of inhuman inhuman. I read every night with my children. I you know I'm standing here because I'm a good reader. But there's a difference between reading for pleasure and making a choice about helping children be better readers in school and then reading for pleasure. Because the key factor is if you can't read very well, it's not very pleasurable. 
David Walliams, you might know the, um, the author David Walliams. Um, you might disagree with his um, comedy, but actually he writes some great books, um, you know, my children love. And I like him because my children like him. Um, he said that's fantastic too. The problem is there was independent evaluation by the EEF and it was pretty damning about the impact of chatterbooks. So FSM over here, free school meals um, pupils, so the pupils who need most support and there's demonstrably more funding, et cetera, meant to be allocated for, for those children. Actually, it was damaging. Their progress was being hampered by being part of the Chatterbooks program, that they were doing extra reading and it was actually hampering their work. That's counterintuitive. The evidence can actually challenge our intuitions and we need them to be challenged. We were talking um, at dinner earlier on, every time a teacher does something new, we pretty much like it. If we've been given time to train and develop it, we like doing it, we enjoy it. You might be enjoying this week, but the acid test of this week will be what you do over months of time and we won't know if this is a success until a year hence. You enjoying it, it's great, but actually that, that's not the meaningful thing. It's whether it worked and was successful in time. So that's, that's the challenge you, you two at the back have got. If we compare this to another, another program, Switch On Reading, okay, and I'm not advocating this program, I'm just using it as an example of a choice. So it's another one-to-one -one literacy intervention. It's short, 10 weeks, delivered by trained teaching assistants. It doesn't have to be in the classroom, often it's best. Um, done in the morning, in form time, which isn't essential. If you're not familiar with the English system, it's the time where registers are taken, etc. Um, that program was evaluated at a very similar time. And although the sample is quite small, actually, the effect size is quite positive. And when you compare it to the very negative impact of the previous one, then you are left with a choice. Okay. Now, You've got to ask other questions. It isn't always about just the data and the attainment because that might be short term. In three years time, the impact of chatterbooks might actually be more positive than we thought. So we've, we've always got to be critical about simple conclusions and we need to be asking questions. Is reading for pleasure valuable enough? Is that something we should be doing in school? Can we do it in other ways that don't take school time? Does our viewpoint of chatterbooks change when we're making a parallel choice? Often, we're just picking one thing or nothing. And what's our urge as a human if we're offered this solution or nothing? We'll take the new solution. What outcomes are most important? Reading to learn or reading for pleasure and in different schools and in different contexts? That is a complicated question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So if you can read better, then you read for pleasure. You re you'll likely read for pleasure more. Just reading for pleasure, but if you struggle reading, you probably hit a plateau where you can't read any more complex books for, you know, for older, you know, young adults. So you, your pleasure stops because you're not a very effective reader. So that's complex, so you need to know more about that. And what is education for? Is it about you know, just this kind of data, this improvement, of being a better reader. 
So there are, there are lots of questions and ethics around that, but we have a choice. And every teacher in every classroom is enacting hundreds of choices every week. Every school leader, everyone in this room are enacting choices. And we need the best available evidence to enact those choices. Even then it's complicated, but we're making a better decision. And there are ethics around, we can't always have a great randomized trial to tell us whether something worked or it didn't. Sometimes it's not ethical to hold something back from students, but sometimes it's actually unethical to not test and to not offer up the latest gadget. So how realistic is it? And I think, you know, a point for questions here around how can we take this back? Often we're in a kind of a narrow context and we can't deal with a lot of those bigger pressures that are forced upon us. We don't always have the time or expertise to be able to access the research. Now, what I'll move on to now is just there are successful things and positive things happening. I would describe this week as a very positive thing. I wrote a blog um, for um, Durham University about a week or two ago, and it was about assessment and actually how after 14 years of teaching, it's only in the last two or three years I've realized how spectacularly undertrained I am on assessment. And I have led not just classrooms full of children, I have led a department, I have led training across a whole school, and I have led national training, and I would say that my understanding of assessment is low. And it was poor. It was, it was scant. It was very little. So that's... that's where we are, so there's a lot of development to happen. But let's talk about some of the successes and kind of finish on a high. We've got all this confusion, we've got all of these different um, developments. I think we've, we've got an emerging, it's just an attractive male, I'm just showing you an attractive <laughs> male. Uh, that's Ben Goldacre, um, he is a, um, a kind of, what is he? Gonna... Uh, Scientist, media, um, yeah. And in 2013, he gave this um, talk at Research Ed that I was at, um, which has shown that there's a movement in schools around using evidence. I'll just show you a very short video. Yeah. That's worse, because now we can see it. Can you not lip read? Is right. Ah. Uh, How do you make it go? Back? Sorry, I've completely interrupted your flow. Huh? Most of the conversation, like everybody who's a member of yeah. the British Medical Association, gets the British Medical Journal delivered to their door, and the conversation you see the most about this as they pile up in the toilet is: Do I have to take the recycling bag, the plastic coating off of it, before I put it in the recycling box, or is it okay to just stick the whole pile in? Right? You need clear summaries of research that are meaningful and relevant to you. You need a three-paragraph summary that says, what did they do? What did they find? What are the strengths and weaknesses of that research? What are the gaps? What needs to be done next to resolve the outstanding uncertainty about what worked best? Okay, now that was a bit of a, um, a defining moment, I think, for not everyone in the school system, for actually a small number, but it started a movement and it led to programs like RISE. So RISE is an EEF project um, funded 
um, to Huntington School. I led it, I worked with Stuart um, and Rob Coe um, from Chem at Durham University to develop a training program for research leads. All those things earlier about making choices, about actually understanding the research on teaching and learning. No one's thought to ever train any school leaders on that. Never. Even though we've got decades of quite useful research evidence. So we tried in our kind of um, nascent, kind of early development way to do that. And it's very much a pilot in, in, in real terms, in that none of it existed. But now we've finished RISE quite recently, and I think we've all learnt you know, kind of a lot from it. And you're seeing lots of things like this now emerge, lots of tools for teachers. So on, that, on a previous slide, you had the um, College of Teaching. People can join the College of Teaching, very small amount, and you, you don't just have access to research, they have to go much more than that. But actually, we're starting to have a movement where people are wanting more and they're being given the tools to do it, sure, actionable tools, and that was one of them. Another very positive thing, at Huntington, I'm now, I've got that grand director title, I didn't make that, um, but I'm leading research school at Huntington, which is one of the research schools around the country, and actually, what we're doing is supporting, as teachers, I still teach English um, for all my sins, as teachers, translating the research, making it usable, making it actionable, and, and wrapping training around it for teachers, by teachers for teachers, but with expert input. People like Jonathan Sharples, who will speak tomorrow, have helped design all of that. So it's rooted in good evidence. And we didn't have that 10 years ago. And I wish as a head of English, leading a group of 15 adults, that I had more of that. So positive things are happening and we're making better decisions. And we'll be able to support on CPD, on training, training like this, help people deal with, you know, the, the whatever Ofsted are saying, that we can fend that off. There are a lot of Ofsted myths that we can actually navigate all of that by having better knowledge and better evidence. And I think this, this is a really salient quotation. There isn't research evidence that I can just kind of package up for you now and go, right, if you take that home, we're fixed, it's fine, make your decisions from that. It's complicated. There's lots of nuances. Ultimately, it's research evidence that's happened in schools in the past somewhere else. We are always making our own individual judgments. We're applying our wisdom. This is not replacing our wisdom. This is supporting our choices and adding to our wisdom. Go on, good, good. Go on, in what, go on? Uh, my opinion is take 80% of assessment tests uh, available instruments on the internet is, uh, as the song is in the middle side, bullshit. Yeah. 80%. Yeah. So, so everywhere somewhere, oh, that's not good to Yeah, so I, I think, yeah, I, I would agree that most things are bullshit. To, to put it politely, uh, I didn't put it politely, I didn't know what word to convert that to. Um, I, I agree, but I think this notion of, you know, the worst, so, you know, the, what the evidence might say, that brain gym is absolutely fatuous nonsense. But somewhere in some school, it was applied and it changed practice and shifted practice because people reflected on being a teacher. 
So I think there's a notion that even if it is generally bullshit, it could still have had good positive effects somewhere under certain conditions. I'm not saying that everything works. Lots of things demonstrably don't work, but they can work somewhere. Yeah, and they'll pedal that. Yeah. Yeah. I I'd be very happy if every teacher in England had the presumption that most things were bullshit. I'd be very happy with that presumption. We're not going to end on that because that'd be a bit of a negative ending. Um, I I don't think I've got time really. Um, but if you've been in England for the last couple of years, you'll have heard about growth mindset, and maybe growth mindset's bullshit. I think the more you know about it the more you realize it's certainly not what you're sold. It's certainly not an easy solution to all of your children's needs. And actually, I think we've been sold it as a fix-all, and I think we've been guilty in our school of doing that, and I think it's my job to say, right, call, call, call on that bullshit. Yeah, the surface of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I, you know, everything yeah. she says is, is the Yeah. Which is what our school did. Yeah. Which is what my school did. Okay? And this, that's what this slide is. Did we all read both of those? Did we read that, which is written in a very simplistic way for parents and things like that? Did we read both? Did we read beyond that? No. On the RISE program, we actually dug down to individual studies. And now, when people are trying to replicate growth mindset, they're really struggling because it's bloody complex and hard to do. Now, is it bullshit? I like the idea of just saying, calling bullshit on it, and then, and then starting from that position and trying to glean what's useful. Okay? So there are evidence around this notion of character, which I think is probably largely bullshit. But I think it's worth looking at, and, and there are good things in there. There's the 20% that you talked about, which is what we're looking for. But there's lots of that, okay? You know, if we stick a brain on it, you know, people will think it's good. Now, I'll go through that, but there is evidence. I've, in my job as a research lead, was to read that evidence, to find that out. There's other people, that's your job, to know this stuff and to find that out. We need to employ people in schools who know stuff. And we need people who know stuff about assessment, okay? because we don't know enough. And we're not gonna have every teacher knowing lots about assessment, but we should bloody have assessment leads who know a lot about assessment and who are steering senior leaders and maybe a senior leader themselves about the best way to go about it. And then if you are going to distill all of that complex 30 years of research, and all of it I don't think is bullshit, I think there's some actual useful, actionable things from there, so there are strategies around feedback. My favorite note is a teaching strategy where you give, um, it could be a post-it note, it could be a flashcard or a piece of paper. It's best done in maths and science where it's a kind of, maths is the best, I think, where you give them a question. They do their answer. They do their working out in maths. You go around the room. You don't look for the right answer. You look for your favorite no, the favorite wrong answer. And you show that because it's the misconceptions that you're looking for and working out. What children don't know is as important as what they do know. So that strategy, for me, is a, just a good feedback strategy. 
But underneath the umbrella of growth mindset, I think that's supportive of a culture where children aren't afraid to fail and children recognize that making mistakes is pretty normal. You know, is it is it the Edison light bulb? You know, kind of... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive that because if you take a rational approach to evaluation that you don't take risks. It's just that you record what you've done and you check whether that risk was worth taking or not. But you see, the thing is when people walk out into the wilderness, yeah. the explorers, they don't actually know what they're Okay, they don't, but if they didn't have a map and if they didn't really grasp all of the elements of exploration, the tools they needed for when they get lost, then they'd be negligent. I'm just saying what I'm looking for, I want teachers to have their... Yeah, that's your evaluation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do what the dead person did. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, you look at climbing Everest, okay? I'm very interested in climbing Everest. I've kind of followed it for, for decades. Um, you know, lots of people have died climbing Everest. People still climb up it knowing that people die, knowing that it's a highly risky, almost ridiculous act. You know, it's kind of, you know, the death rate, etc. But we still get better. We still learn from going up and going down. And we evaluate and we reflect on the people who lived and died and the people who went up certain pathways. And we have desire paths. We have paths in the snow that become the walked pathway because people have gone that direction. And what I'm saying, and I, I kind of agree with Dylan William, is there is not all the evidence. You can't act always based on existing evidence, because often it's not there. What I'm saying is that you head off on a path and you are critical and you're asking questions along the way. It shouldn't stop you going along the path. It should just make you be very critical as you go. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's let's move on then to lots of good stuff there. Um, but we've got to distill it down. Uh, but let's move on to what my school do and whether you think this constrains innovation or whether you it's it's discipline supported risk taking. Okay, so what we've got in schools, in English schools, is a huge amount of constraint. Okay, people don't do things unless Ofsted have mandated we should do them. People don't do things unless the Department of Education say they're the right thing to do. Okay, so that, that's the existing model we have. Okay, I'm sorry, I, I just kind of want my experience of being in the UK, uh, yeah. three schools in the UK, yeah. uh, government staff administration, yeah. but working with Ofsted and being inspected, you can yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a choice. Absolutely, it's always a choice. It's always a choice. I think the issues around accountability 
are as much the responsibility of the school leaders, and I being one, of anyone else. I, d I don't discount that. But I also think amongst that, we need to innovate and take risks within constraints. So our model is not about you know, just going for data. You know, the rationalist approach, this is almost my response through the medium of Ben Goldacre and his fantastic hair, of which I have very little. Okay? It's about the right combination of skills. It's about making teaching intellectually enriching and supported with tools and training and expertise. It's not about constraining risk. So we have a model of disciplined inquiry. Some people could call it action research. It, we don't use the word research because we don't think it meets the criteria of what we use research for, okay? But we think that there's a huge wisdom in what's happening in our classrooms with our teachers and we support them to enact that. But we follow our training around inquiry. So we don't just try a new risk, we don't just try a new thing, we do try new things, but we actually phrase that in a question, a question that we can evaluate, better evaluate. So what is my inquiry question? What am I looking to do? And we try and narrow that down. And I'll show a couple of questions in a moment. What student cohort and why? How big is it? How small is it? And, and knowing the difference, and we train and support teachers. What tests, what assessments will I use at the start and at the end? And let's be honest, most teachers have only ever really thought about doing a test at the end to check what they did worked. What control factors can I have? And I would, I would stand with anyone who said, well, can a teacher ever really control across two classes? No, they probably can't, but at least we can make some good judgments. And what are the limitations and obstacles that affect what I'm trying to do? Am I trying this thing on a Wednesday afternoon with one class and then on a Friday morning with another? You know? And what are the results and how generalizable? Because it happens in my classroom. Will it happen in the science classroom across the school? Will it happen in the music department? Those are valid questions. Here's one question, and this might feel constraining, but actually it tries to support teachers to be precise, to train and enact disciplined risks and disciplined inquiry. So this is generic, and this isn't one of the ones from my school, um, which I didn't share. My disciplined inquiry this year was about using the Freya model, which is a, a, a way of analyzing individual words for poetry at GCSE with my year 10 students. And with one of my classes, I didn't use the Freya model. I just taught poetry as best I knew how as I'd always done it. And with the other group, I thought that the complex language would, might be supported by using the Freya model. So I used that as a teaching tool. And I used the baseline of the vocabulary, I created a vocabulary kind of knowledge tool, taking words out of the poems, et cetera, et cetera. I did all of that because I was supported with a year's worth of time, training, asking this question, making the tools, talking to other people in the department, et cetera. So this was me trying to make a good choice, supported with time and expertise. Am I right in thinking that this is basically your professional development? Yeah, this is our professional development. Every teacher does it, yeah. Lesson observation where it's no. or anything. No. Or this no. Yeah. yeah, we don't do. If people want to be observed, they ask to be observed. Yeah, yeah. So yeah actually, it's this is my research question. Yeah, you, yeah. You come in and check yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and a huge, and a, we talked about this actually at dinner, yeah. a huge factor around this is when we said that this is part of your professional development, people thought, what if it doesn't work? Do I not get my pay? 
That was, a, that was a genuine focus. If this doesn't work, that's a bad thing, isn't it? And actually, we had to say, no, that's completely the opposite. Actually, we want you to take this risk, to undertake this inquiry, and if it hasn't worked, fantastic, because that's the information we need to share more in schools. We need to, we need to share what didn't work. We've got enough of brand new shiny ideas of what's gonna change the world. Actually, we need to work out what doesn't work as much as what works. So we wanted, we wouldn't want people to fail, but we wanted to make it risk-free. And people, this is, um, I'm just for kind of ethical protection, I'm not going into detail, but the, we gave the support, we gave the time to write this up. We didn't demand excessive, we didn't demand certain models where this, this is a science teacher, so they were creating, you know, their kind of graphs, etc. I didn't have a graph. Okay, I wish I had the Excel spreadsheet skills to have a graph, but I don't. Um, but teachers were reflecting, and it looks like a master's poster because actually people wanted it in that format. We asked teachers, and it's how they wanted to do it, and it was, it was you know, a kind of a measured way of doing it without doing excess work. And people shared it. People talked about it. You can see here we had a celebration. That's books fizz. It's not just juice. Um, and we talked about it, we're sharing it, and across departments we've talked about the innovations and the practice we've undertaken, and next year we're going to revisit them, and people are undertaking new questions. A lot of people are choosing to carry on with what the first question they asked, but they've tweaked it and they're changing it. We're not saying you have to do this, you, you can't do this, it is the teacher choice but we're supporting them to ask great questions. We're supporting their choices. We're treating teachers like the experts they are, and we're making sure that it's an intellectual environment. Yes? When these are completed, yep. Yeah, so, so the answer is no. Okay, this is for our internal benefit amongst our teachers because, you know, that point about how generalizable is it? We don't actually want to go to the point of saying this worked in our school because it might have a lot of... However, next year we are going to share... Individual teachers want to share what they've done and we're going to obviously support them to do that. But we're not systematically doing that. Yeah. 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 So what? We'll, yeah. What we want to do next year is is scale up the things that worked. People want to do that already. We we haven't said that's the best way to do it, but people are naturally doing that. So we're going to make sure. One of the things we wanted to do is make sure we didn't drop this. It was great for one year because that's everything I've talked against in terms of school improvement is sustained and subtle and informed by expertise. So we were going to take it forward. Yeah. Um, how much choice do you give people what they do? So if they decide to go with something like brain gym or whatever, yeah. do you go, oh, hang on a second, or do you just allow them to, to have a go at something which so, evidence currently is a bit... Yeah, so I think what we've done over, over a period of years in the school is support teachers to have a bit of a good critical overview of teaching and learning. Yeah. So there's been nothing that we've said, you really shouldn't do that. It's baseless. And it's because actually this didn't just get dropped yeah, in. Yeah, this, we've, we've done some training and shared this system in the query model and, and schools are going, we're doing that next year. Yeah. Stop, stop. 
don't do that yet because actually you need the support factors and training around that. So this, this is about the two or three years of, of teacher training and development yeah, wrapping around. Yeah. So people don't just yeah. With yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think this works everywhere. But the notion of teachers asking questions with support, pre-test and post-test, one of the kind of revolutionary things around understanding assessment is just some simple notions around before we've done something, having a baseline. I know that sounds ridiculously obvious, but it's not how we're acting a lot of the time in schools. And that's one of the things that we just shared in this process. One of the things we have to do is train people, what would be a good assessment? What would be the appropriate assessment? And they're not as well trained as you will be by the end of this week, but we feel like they've got enough training to make a good judgment. And actually, they're good teachers anyway, so you know, any limitations are fine. The network is growing. We've got um, schools there. It's now in September, we'll have that many research schools, and we're sharing tools and training programs across one another. And that is what, you know, remember we go back to what changes people's habits? They listen to other schools. And that's what we need to do. We need to have a profession where we're talking to one another, sharing expertise, connecting up other experts externally. So I think that's a positive success. Jonathan Charples might talk about that tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just going to ask a question, Alex, about being part of a network. Yeah. Because um, I get the newsletter. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter that I'm in Slough. Yeah, yeah. Geographically, it's irrelevant. Yeah. You can yeah. still be part of the network. Yeah. Tap into yeah. Anyone in the world can see the newsletter. Yeah. They do. I watch it. Yeah. Okay. So I was just curious as to yeah. whether there are there's some guidance from the EEF about yeah. how far a spread you have. So yeah, I think what would what what I think what's important is that because some of these are new, they're going to be less developed than we are. Yeah. So we don't want everyone coming to two or three research schools. We want to make sure it's even, but we need to make sure that people are going to the right places for what they want. And we're not all doing exactly the same thing. We're not kind of automatons who kind of, this is what we're doing. So there's flexibility within that. But if there's training coming from Slough to York all the time. Yeah, no, it's, related, not that. Yeah. it's about, it's, it's the e-connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to make the most yeah. of that kind of network. And I think, you know, people here are yeah. from loads of different areas of the world. But if you can have, make those connections and share information yeah. Yeah, so, so that's the website. You can, everyone in the world can sign up to the newsletter. The newsletter, I would say, I think is very good every month. We share new evidence, we share teachers distilling things from across the country and actually even further. So that's accessible for anyone. We run programs that, and we don't put a geographical bar. So um, if I just go back um, to the map, no, I won't. If I go back, that schools from over here have been coming to our training this year. They really probably should go to Aspira, but because our training is more suited to them, they've been coming to us, and that's fine, and we're not going to stop that. That's appropriate. Alex, yes. What process, go on. what process do you have as to support teachers as they go through the process of undertaking the research? I mean, do, you, do you have uh, learning communities? So 
what you've got, we are, we are one of the emerging networks. There's the College of Teaching, there's you know, other organizations that are doing similar things. What we offer, we can't offer everything. I'd love to offer programs on all aspects of teaching and learning and school leadership, et cetera, but we can't. We offer a program around leading CPD and designing a CPD program. We offer a program around being a research lead. We offer a program around TA leadership, et cetera. So we're picking certain training programs to say, right, if this is a need, join this program. Also, we're having conferences. We've had a big research ed conference a couple of months back where there's about 270, 80 people and lots of experts and, and Stuart spoke, et cetera. That's for everyone. And then we'll have other conferences on literacy, on you know, writing, on elements of numeracy, on science, et cetera, as we move forward. We'll respond to what people want. The newsletter goes to everyone. The blogs are for everyone. And once we've got 22 of us all inputting as well, it will be a real you know, huge network to tap into. And some of the, so research ed, we had people from Hong Kong um, and uh, another, another Middle Eastern country, I can't quite remember, coming to that because they'd seen it online. So there is no kind of localized barrier, but if you're going for regular training and training should be sustained and deep, then you probably need to do it down the road just because you've got to pick up your kids and do everything else. So, any more questions? I'm conscious people have got to finish. Um, the door has been open for quite a while. I'm going to let, let people go out, let people go out. Um, is that not something that's part of your training? Well, I would hope, yeah. I would hope, I would hope that our teacher training had a lot of this inquiry embedded. It doesn't currently. And, well, I say that. Teacher training in England is so varied, so mixed, that I don't even know what half of it is. So, and, and in your training year, and even in your first two years, you don't ever really have the time to be able to do that on a deeper level that's sustained. Often you need to be practicing for two or three years and consolidate your kind of your classroom management and those core elements too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, so, so for me, what we should have is a system where from initial training, I was at some initial training yesterday before teachers have ever embarked in the classroom, this should start then, and it should happen throughout our careers. What happens in too many schools is CPD is, you know, a kind of a five-day kind of you know, gap in which just, it's just random things just plonked through the year. It's not part of a systematic career professionalism. It's why people are here this week, because we don't have a fabric of training that is career long, and it should start at the beginning, but we're a long way from that. So these are support factors for teachers who've been in the profession one year, 10 years, 30 years. Right, can I say thank you for listening this evening? Um, I hope that was interesting. Any more questions, just pick them up with these lot um, and question that source and be very critical. Hope it wasn't bullshit. <laughs>
assessmentacademy.co.uk. And to keep up to date with our latest news, subscribe on iTunes to receive this monthly podcast to your device, follow us on Twitter at Evidence in Edu, or find our website at www.evidencebased.education.